right. It's good to see you all and to be back with you today. And thank you, Chancel Choir, for a beautiful, beautiful anthem. Time to think and, and reflect and pray as they were singing. I'm blessed that often in my office I get to hear the different choirs practicing in the choir room right next door. And uh, sometimes somebody will offer to close my door, but I encourage them not to do that. The, uh, the music calms me on those days when I'm anxious about one or two or 40 or 50 things. And uh, it always inspires me. It's always a blessing to hear. And so thank you all for that. And thank you all for, for being here on this day. We're going to continue in John chapter 6 today. I had said that today would be the last in that series, but the chapter is longer than even I realized, and so we won't finish John chapter 6 today, but we will next Sunday. I know it's Labor Day weekend, and I know that once in a while, sometimes folks go out of town on Labor Day weekend, but that's okay. I want you to notice on the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, you might have missed it, that Labor Day weekend is also known in many places as Seersucker Sunday. So uh, <laughs> let's see what we can do about that. And uh, those of us who are here, and I will be here, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to worshiping with you on Labor Day weekend. And for those of you who are traveling about, be careful and, and come home. John chapter 6, beginning with verse 51 today. And I would ask you to stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel. John 6, beginning with verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Growing up like I did in southwest Atlanta, not too far from downtown, we were not exposed to too many wild critters. Squirrels and birds were about as wild as they came, except for the possums, or the opossums, depending on uh, where you're from and what you like to call them. But there was a small park behind our house. It was an Atlanta City Park, Emma Milliken Park, and a small patch of woods. And I believe that's where these nocturnal kind of creatures hung out. And they would come out at night, and they would come up on our back porch and eat the food that we had left out for our cats. One morning, I had gone out in the backyard for something, and I happened up on a possum that appeared for all the world to be graveyard dead. 
And my first inclination was to pick it up and carry it back to the back of the yard and throw it over the fence. I thought better of it. I said, what if it has some kind of disease or something that might transfer to me? So I went in the garage and got a shovel and I scooped it up and it was still exhibiting all the characters of deadness. It's little head hung off one end of the shovel and its tail off the other end. And so I carried it to the back of the yard, to the fence. It was about a five-foot-high chain-link fence. And I threw the possum over the fence. And it hit the ground with a resounding thud. And then it stood up on all fours like it had good sense, and it ran off into the woods. The, the silly thing had been playing possum. And I thought, what if I had picked this thing up? And it had turned on me, I would have, that would have, it would have been all over. How do we determine in this world what's alive and what's not? Where is the line drawn between life and death? And who has the privilege or the responsibility or the burden of drawing that line? Is it a question of heartbeats and brain waves and respirations, or is there more to it than that? What's alive and what's not? Can we answer that question by using some of our sophisticated, very contemporary medical technology, electronics, and other things? Can we determine that? What's dead? What's alive? What does it mean when we hear someone say at a funeral service, when we overhear someone say, well, he or she is really better off. If they had lived, they would have been a vegetable. That's a harsh way of saying it, but I've heard that so many times. What's alive and what's not? Are vegetables living things, flora and fauna? We have the know-how and the machinery to keep critically ill folks alive, or maybe I should say to keep critically ill folks breathing for a long, long time. And one of the most agonizing decisions that any family can make, and I suspect all of us here have been in that predicament at least once, or we will be, is how long to leave someone on life support. Some folks say that Such systems should never have been developed. That we have invaded God's territory, God's space. I thought back to some folk in the Old Testament who wanted to invade God's space, God's territory. They thought if they could only reach up to the heaven where God was, then they could could work everything out. And so they set about building a tower formed a construction company, began to build a tower, invading God's space. That didn't turn out so well, did it? That construction company went bankrupt, and the cause of the bank rupture was a failure to communicate with one another. God had other ideas. But that's getting off track a little bit, invading God's space. The question is breathing, living. Is that the same thing? If something is breathing, is it alive? There was a woman who taught at Sylvan Hills High School in Atlanta, where I went to high school, for several years. She taught English at first, and then she switched over. She began to teach algebra and geometry. 
And I had a great respect for anybody that could deal with words and numbers as well as she did. We called her Sister Ruth, not to her face, we called her Miss Rogers, but we called her Sister Ruth because she was also an ordained Methodist pastor, later United Methodist, and she was listed in the North Georgia Conference Journal as a conference evangelist. That's a pretty nice sounding title, but there was no compensation. So she taught school for a living. Years later, when I was a seminary student, Sister Ruth was also at the Candler School of Theology. She had retired from teaching. She was in her 70s, and she was working on her doctor's degree. She was an incredible woman. Sister Ruth used a lot of biblical expressions in the high school classroom. When she passed out an exam, she'd say, all right, brothers and sisters, this one's going to separate the sheep from the goats. (laughs) And a few days later, she would hand back the graded exams. And most days, I found myself seated at the left hand of the sister, so to speak. Occasionally, the noise level out in the hallway near our classroom got so loud that Sister Ruth would have to walk out there to calm things down. She walked with one crutch, the kind of the metal one that hooked around her her right wrist. And she was a large, imposing figure of a woman. And she intimidated folks, students out in the hallway, especially little bitty sub-freshman, sub-human eighth graders. She scared them to death. And she walked down the hall this one day and she looked around and she pointed to the kids in the hall and she said, y'all hold it down out here. And then she pointed back to our classroom and she said, you're waking up the dead in here. (laughs) Waking up the dead. We were all breathing. You ever heard a coach say to a team, a football team, a soccer team, a, a baseball team, team that was walking around and appeared to be in good health. You ever heard a coach turn and say to such a bunch, look alive, look alive. What does that mean? That means shape up and act like you care about being here. Look alive. And so breathing and living, is there a difference in being alive, lowercase, and alive, uppercase with three exclamation points? Is there a difference in being alive and being alive? In Scripture, in the passage we read this morning, what does Jesus mean when he says to his followers, eat my flesh and drink my blood, those who do this will become alive because of me? What does that mean? What does that aliveness in Christ look like and sound like? What does that mean in my life and in your life and the life of the church? I want to take a few minutes and consider that question. Now, Think about it like this. If we are really alive, we are really alive, I believe, because we understand our place in the chain of life. The chain of life begins with our Heavenly Father, and it passes to Jesus Christ, the Son, God incarnate, and then it comes to us. I think it's spelled out for us in this passage. Jesus said, as the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so those who eat my flesh will live because of me. It sounds like, it feels like a chain of life to me. Do you see the three links in the chain? The living Father, the living Son, and hopefully the living you and me. 
Children of the Father, sisters and brothers of the Son, that's who we are. The living Father, not just an idol, not just a God of do you remember when, and it's all over now. Not the central character in a legend, ancient or contemporary, but the God who lives and breathes and breathes life into Christ and to us. The God who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Our refuge and strength. A very present help. And underline that word present. It's from Psalm 46, my favorite psalm in scripture. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help. Not something that used to be. Not something that might be someday. But our very present help in time of trouble. The living father who sent the living son, Jesus the Christ. Lord, forgive us. If in any sentence where Jesus Christ is the subject, we use as our verb the word was. Jesus is. Jesus said, I live, and because I live, you shall live also. Jesus Christ, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. That's who we're talking about, very much alive. And then there's that third link in the chain of life, and that's you and me. And if we are really and truly alive, it's because we partake of Christ. We partake of the living one. He's become a part of our lives and we live through him and for him, sent by the living father. Jesus said, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, abide in me and die in them. And remember in John's gospel, that word abide is a huge word. It means to live in and to trust in, to exist because of Christ. It's used over and over. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. Abide's a big word. To abide is the term for expressing trust. And it brings about that reassurance that Christ is alive in us as we abide in him every day of our lives. When Jesus speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, the language is, of course, sacramental. It refers to the Eucharist, to the Lord's Supper, to the Holy Communion, but there's more to it than that, I do believe. That's not all it means. To eat and drink with another is an act of intimacy and union, to abide in one another. Have you ever been out at a place with someone significant eating and you're talking and and you're caring for each other and you've been there a while and first thing you know the server's asking if you can pick your feet up so they can sweep the floor because you've been there a long time you've gotten that caught up in what was going on a lot of great things happen around the table we learn to abide in one another and with one another and around God's table we learn to abide in Christ but also in scripture table has a greater significance And I didn't learn this until a few years ago, that in scriptural times, when folks who were at odds with one another, enemies or folks who just needed to reconcile, for that to happen, they needed to sit down at table and share a meal together. And that's where the healing and forgiveness took place. And when I discovered that and started thinking about it, there's a line, a phrase in the 23rd Psalm that made a lot more sense to me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. 
So it's important that we sit down, that we feast on Christ. And sometimes the time just passes by and we, we rejoice in who Jesus is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the way that Paul would talk about what we're, we're talking about. Jesus is not advocating some strange form of cannibalism here, though that accusation's been made across the centuries, eat my flesh, drink my blood. But there's more than that. He is saying, I draw my life from my Father in heaven. And if you are to be really alive in this world, I want you to draw your life from me and abide in me and lean on me and walk with me and follow me. The chain of life, the living Father, the living Son, you and me and all those who have said yes to God in Jesus Christ. That's the way the chain works. When we understand and experience our place in that chain, then we know what it is to become truly alive. Fill that emptiness inside with the bread of life and the blood of our Lord and we are strengthened by that. And when we experience our place in the chain, we are truly, certainly, without a doubt, alive, really alive. To be alive in Jesus Christ is to embrace life every day, to embrace it with a joy and with a passion and a deep sense of gratitude. To be alive in Christ is more than just going through the motions. Well, it's Wednesday, and this is what I do on Wednesday, just going through the motions. I've mentioned Tony Campolo before. He's an American Baptist minister. He's retired now. I've heard him speak three or four times and seen his videos and just been a fan of his for a long time. Read most of his books. And he is one of the most alive in Christ folks I've ever been around. And he just it exudes that aliveness and, and that power. You can't miss it. He enjoys life every day and that enthusiasm spills over on to those who might be anywhere around him. He has a passion for life. And he tells this story, and I think it's a true story. After all, he's a pastor and he would never exaggerate. But he says that he likes to get on an elevator when there are a lot of folks on there. Instead of turning around and looking up at the numbers over the door, he likes to face everybody and just look at them and smile and then say something crazy like, I know you're all wondering why I called you here today. And then he says he gets off at the next floor and if there's a staircase, he runs up the stairs and when the elevator gets to the next floor, he's standing there facing and when the door's open, he says, I know you people have been talking about me. I mean, do that today and somebody's going to cuff you and, and take you away most likely. But, but he, he's just got that kind of passion that he, he can't keep within himself. When we go through the valleys, and we will, this is the Christ who walks with us, who gives us the passion for life, the one we can lean on. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and somebody told me, Years ago, keep walking. You don't have to buy a lot and build a house. Move through the valley of the shadow of death. 
He'll walk with you. And so in the valley low and on the mountain high and in the in-between places where most of us live most of our lives, he is with us and we can embrace him. And he embraces us. And it means real life to be alive in Jesus Christ, to wrap our arms around this gift of life we've been given for however many days or hours to be here and to live it to the fullest. To be alive in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to be secure and not afraid. Fearful folks, it seems to me, live with clenched fist, ready to strike out at anyone who disagrees with them or anyone who angers them in any way or upsets their apple cart. People who live with clenched fist holding tightly onto everything they have so materially oriented. Either they hoard against an unpredictable future, a frightful future, or maybe they buy into the Wall Street lie that claims that our happiness is directly proportional to how much stuff we have. Driving the right car, wearing the right clothes, right cologne, the right perfume, living in the right house in the right neighborhood. So we hold tight because that's where our identity seems to be and we're afraid of what happens or what might happen if we loosen up and lighten up just a little. Fear is a dreadful thing. And if we live with fear long enough, it will extinguish any spark within us. It'll rob us of our joy and our passion for living. Fear has many faces, not just the one I talked about, hanging on to to what you got, but many other faces. We, We are a fearful and frightful people in our time. But in the final analysis, fear is fear, and none of us is so big, and none of us has a heart so large that there's room in that heart for Jesus and fear to coexist. One of them's got to go. Jesus will put fear on the road if we'll let him. And then we begin to live and move and have our being in Jesus Christ. There's a story in a book that I have. A good friend of mine gave me the book in 1976 when I was first ordained. And some great stories. And occasionally I pull it out. And thinking about fear and faith and life in Christ, I remembered one of the stories It's about an older lady who lived in Buffalo and was going to take the boat to Cleveland to visit her daughter. And she was on the boat, and they were about halfway there, and a huge, frightful storm came up. And the boat was rocking, and people were crying and screaming and running about. They were so afraid. And she sat calmly on a bench, praying and singing and praising God. And when the storm was over, Folk began to gather around her and said, how could you do that? Weren't you terrified? How could you be so calm? And she said, well, it's kind of like this. I have two daughters. I had two daughters. One is in heaven and one's in Cleveland. And when the storm came up, my only thought was, which daughter will I see first? And I wasn't afraid. Alive in Christ. To be alive in Christ is to spend time with him every day in prayer, meditation, in the scriptures. And we need some alone time and we also need this time. This is important. We need this gathered time. 
we need to look around and think about who's not here that needs to be here and reach out and open our hearts. We need this time together to stay alive in Christ. Ignored relationships will always deteriorate every time. And we need this time together to know one another and to know Christ. And I believe that deep down, we all have that hunger to abide in him and for him to abide in us. And then we come alive in new ways. And it's not just a physical jumping around, loud, runabout kind of way. Some of the most alive folks in Christ I've ever known could not get up out of their bed, could not get out of the wheelchair, But there was something about them, there was a spirit about them that was unmistakable that they were alive. And it was unmistakable who the source of their life was. And folk need to see that in us. And they need to see it and hear it when we're together in this place. I may have told you that John Ed Matheson, one of my sort of heroes at a distance, one of my mentors at a distance was pastor at Fraser Memorial UMC in Montgomery, Alabama for years and years. And he tells this story. Again, I don't know if it's a true story, but I think it's a great story. He said at Fraser one Sunday morning, a man died, just died in the pew. They called the paramedics. And the paramedics removed 23 people before they got to the right guy. When we are alive in Christ, it's unmistakable. It doesn't always have to be out there kind of thing, but it's unmistakable. And we cannot be alive in Christ and play in possum at the same time. It'll never work. So a couple of things and then we'll, we'll stop. Number one, are you alive this morning? That's with a little A. Just check and see, got a pulse. And the next question, and this is to be answered only by those who found the pulse. Are you really alive in Christ? Amen.